Hey gamers, it's time for an ad break. First, I want to mention that I myself have a Patreon now, so if you want to keep this show going and growing, consider helping me out at patreon.com slash beyondsolitaire. Second, as usual, I'm very proud to say Beyond Solitaire is sponsored by the Center for Learning Through Games and Simulations at Central Michigan University. Their first published game, Monumental Consequence, has cleared customs and should be shipping out soon. If you didn't back it, you can still pre-order it through their Kickstarter page. Next, be on the lookout for their next project, Rising Waters, a game about the Mississippi flood of 1927. You should also look into the Center's Certificate in Applied Game Design. They're offering amazing classes that you should absolutely sign up for. Starting on October 11th, game artist Lamaro Smith will teach a class about visual storytelling and registration is open. Anyway, thanks so much for listening and let's get on with the show. Hey gamers, this is Liz Davidson from Beyond Solitaire and I have a very special guest on the pod this week. I'm here with Professor Scott Nicholson. He is Professor of Game Design and Development at Wilfrid Laurier University. How are you doing tonight? Doing well, thanks for having me on. No, I'm super excited to have you. So many of you out there may know Scott from Board Games with Scott. He's OG board game royalty. If you know me from Board Games with Scott, make sure and take your daily uh, aspirin for your lower back pain. (laughs) Good advice always. (laughs) But um, we're actually together today to talk about something I'm really excited about, which is escape rooms. So I actually looked at your channel before coming on here. I noticed that about seven years ago, you made a video called Why I I Am Studying Escape Rooms. So um, why don't you just kind of outline, how did you get into escape rooms? And um, was this always... Uh, something that you did at an academic level because you're a professor of game design or is it something that started as a hobby and then made it into your scholarship? Well, many of my students would probably say my classrooms are escape rooms because they can't wait for, you know, to get out. Um, But uh, so my escape room story, my escape room story starts in the 1980s, back (laughs) when I was a college student at the University of Oklahoma and I was heavily involved there. There's my, hey, Let's see, I live in Canada now, but I grew up in Oklahoma. So if I got to, you know, I, I can slip right in that accent. We got to talk like this because this probably sounds a little familiar to you, but, you know, but anyway, so that's where I learned the difference between Oklahoma and Texas accents, you know. Yeah, I'm a Texan, actually. You got to keep your teeth together for Texas. That's the difference <laughs> there. But anyway, so yeah, I, I went. To, so I was at Oklahoma and grew up in, in rural Oklahoma on a horse farm and then went to the University of Oklahoma and then moved to Texas and was a librarian at Texas Christian University. And so after getting my library degree. Uh, But when I was in college, I got involved with live action role-playing through the International Fantasy Gaming Society, which was an international group. Um, They they took the world of Dream Park, which was a book, um, and sort of brought that to life. And it was a type of LARPing called Bafo LARPing. And Bafo refers to the padded weapons that you use. So the way these uh, live action role playing games would work is that you would go uh, out to a forest or a park. Um, It would be a big event. There would be uh, a series of encounters set up ahead of time. So you'd have between uh, eight to 12 encounters. And then what would happen is throughout the day, a series of teams would go through those encounters one after another. So the first team would start at 8 a.m. and encounter one. Hi, I'm the king. My princess is missing. Can you find her? Sure. And then the team moves on to the location for encounter two, where there might be a group of people with very bad green face paint on acting like orcs. Ah, we're going to fight you. And they have a combat. And then when team that first team moves on, then the second team starts onto the game course. And so they're following behind the first team. So what happens is throughout the course of a day, you can have four to six teams playing through this game. It's almost like a, like a theme park, like a theme park attraction, like a dark ride, that sort of concept. Um, and I was involved as a player, but then I thought, you know, this is pretty cool. And I started to write games. And so this was actually my first game design was getting involved with creating live action role-playing games in this concept of almost like making a, an experience, a story that was told Uh, scene by scene as the players went through. So unlike uh, live action role-playing games that are more character driven, I don't know if you've, you've talked about LARPs on this podcast or you have experience with LARPs. We have talked about LARPs on this podcast, but we're always ready to hear it again. So (laughs) there's, there's different kinds. There's some that are more character-based where each player is playing a character. And uh, some of those LARPs will be where you have a backstory and you have to learn pages of a backstory and then it is through the interaction of everyone playing their character where the overall game narrative comes to life. Um, There's other games where each player has a character 
but they've created their own backstory and they're engaging in the game world. And the game world is bringing out the story. And so the players are then engaging in it. Um, so this was more of that second type. So the players who play their own uh, their own characters. But I got really involved in designing games and that got me looking at experience design concepts, um, storytelling through, uh, through chapters, uh, creating these interactive narratives. Um, and then little did I know that I was really seeding the ground for what would end up being my teaching techniques uh, for how I would bring students along on a journey. Because if you think about when you create a semester long or year long class experience, that's really what you're doing is you're taking this group of kids who bring their own backstories, their own worlds, and you're creating for them a, a journey, a series of encounters that they're going to have. And like with any game design, you know, games exist because our lives are too easy and we want to make them harder. So we want to play a game. If you think about what a game is, it's like, my life's way too easy right now. I would like some artificial challenge, please, to overcome so that I can I can overcome something. And, and that's what a game is. It's an artificial challenge that we're choosing, an obstacle that we're putting in, our, in front of ourselves to say, yeah, I'm going to get over this obstacle um, because I like the fuzzy brain chemicals that it releases when I get over the obstacle. So that's, but anyway, studying all of these things. And so when you bring that in the classroom, if you think about it as a teacher, a good teacher thinks the exact same way. A good teacher is thinking, what are the obstacles that I can put such that by overcoming one obstacle, they gain confidence, they gain knowledge, and they're going to be able to overcome the next obstacle and the next obstacle. And that's this idea in, in game design. We have this idea of flow. Uh, flow is a theory that I teach in early game design, where the idea is that you want to make the game get more challenging as the player gets better. Um, because if the game gets harder as the player gets better, the player will be engaged in what's going on. If the game gets too hard before the player gets better, then the players get frustrated or the students get frustrated. If the game is too easy, then the player is not feeling challenged and they get bored. And so instead, what you're looking for is to keep them challenged. So whether it be creating live action role-playing games or creating classroom experiences for the students, it's the same same idea. Um, so that was with, so when I was in college, I was exploring game design. I didn't realize that it was preparing me to then teach later on down the road. Um, but when I, I've always enjoyed live action role-playing, before that I did uh, Dungeons and Dragons and tabletop role-playing games. Um, I, I grew up on a farm and so I didn't have a lot of people around to play games with. So as a kid, I would get board games. I would set the board game up, play it by myself and then change it and 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 make it. So I'd set it up, I'd play all the positions, and then I didn't know at that point what I was preparing myself to do, you know, of, of being a game designer or a game redesigner, um, which is a little tip if you're looking to help your students get into game design. The best first way to do it is have them take a game they know and have them redesign it. Um, they, a quick way to start that off is a little exercise I have in class called Tic Tac 3 where it's like take tic-tac-toe, put the students in groups of three and say, now I want you to make a three-player game of tic-tac-toe. And it gets them in game design. And wow, we've just wandered absolutely everywhere, but that's okay. We'll come back to escape rooms. Um, <laughs> so when I, so I've always been involved in, in live action role-playing. Most people knew me through board games though, because in the 1990s, wait, two, wait, what year is it? What, what decade is it? I don't remember anymore. Uh, 2005. Neither do anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it was when I did my first board games with Scott. We're coming up on 20 years, almost 20 years ago. Uh, it was the first board game series on YouTube. Um, but I did it because I was teaching online and I wanted to get better at making video content. And I knew that the only way I would get better at editing videos was to edit videos. And so I said, well, okay, I can start talking about board games and use that as a way to, to improve my video editing skills. So that's why I started that. And a lot of people knew me from board games so that when I then jumped in to start looking at escape rooms, everyone's like, what's that all about? Well, it's because my first published game was a LARP rule set. And when I saw my first escape rooms, I was in Singapore in 2014, actually doing a, uh, a, a teaching librarians in Singapore about how to integrate or integrate games into the libraries. Um, I was wandering around the one of the many shopping malls. I don't know if you've ever been to Singapore. Um, there's a lot of shopping there. Singapore is, it's a, it, it, the main Orchard Street is this series of what in the U.S. would be a destination mall, but it is one after another after another. They're all connected by underground tunnels. So it's it's sort of this dystopian shopping future where you can not see outside and spend all day wandering through many malls. 
Well, these malls had escape rooms. Uh, Singapore is very trend focused. Um, so like when I was there, the food trend was popcorn. And around every corner, there were giant lines for people getting popcorn. My host told me, yeah, that's the food trend for now. And it will swap out for some other food trend uh, that will go crazy. But escape rooms were growing. And so I mentioned it to the library librarians I was talking with. They got very excited. Oh, you want to go to an escape room? So that night, they took me to Chinatown to what I realized now was a really bad escape room from a design perspective. <laughs> Um, the room was, you walked in, there were five boxes, all with locked boxes mounted on the wall, and they related to posters around the room. And it was this tiny little room with six of us in there. So you'd find a, you'd, you got a little clue, you'd find one poster, you'd match it up, you'd solve the puzzle, open the box, and it would give you another piece of information that you'd then figure out which poster you would then match that information to, to deduce and solve the puzzle on the poster to get the next box. And that was it. Five boxes, key, out. There you go. Um, but it was enough for me to say, ha ha, they've monetized LARP. This is interesting to me. And the part of me inside that makes games for learning said, this is exciting because now this is a way to package, uh, because as people get excited about escape rooms, we can package learning activities in with it and people get excited about those. Now, the concept is not new. We've been using simulations for learning for decades. Uh, when I talk about the history of escape rooms, I show things like uh, military simulations, like there's a submarine, a wet, it's a wet room, and it's basically water flooding in while people are solving puzzles as the water floods the submarine. Uh, we've been using simulations in driving, I did driving simulations, I did in medical training, we've been doing these kind of sim and escape rooms are just simulations. Uh, it's a simulation activity, so it's a it's a good match. The nice thing about them, some of the things I like about them is they're cooperative. You're working together with everyone else. Um, they're limited in time, so you know the game ends in an hour, and that sort of that reduces commitment for people who, because if you've ever played, when you talk about games, many people think, oh, you mean like Monopoly, and they think immediately to hour-long Monopoly games that go on and on and on. The nice thing about escape rooms, it's like an hour from now, it's done. The game is over one way or another. And so people are willing to commit to that in a way that they might not commit to a monopoly thing. It's also escape rooms are nice because they don't require preparation. With many games, you have to read the rules. You have to set it up. You have to an escape room. It's like you show up, you pay your money, you're playing the game. And you're playing a really interest, an immersive game. It may or may not be interesting based on the design of it. Um, so there's a lot of elements that make it appealing for a quick educational experience as well, because we're simulating something, you're able to explore something in the world. Um, they don't, in their native form of an escape room, they don't fit too well in a traditional classroom. We can talk about that and unpack that a bit. Um, but some concepts there that are very useful. So to, uh, to make a long story longer, um, I got engaged with escape rooms because I knew I had three decades of LARP experience that I could bring to the forefront. So after I got home from Singapore, I reached out to every escape room I could find on the internet, did a, sent a survey to them, um, got a, a very high response rate from the surveys, which was crazy to hear from so many people. And I wrote the first article about escape rooms because... Uh, I, I was surprised that a number of people wrote back and said, I wouldn't answer this survey, except I know you from Board Games with Scott, and so I have a trust for you. Because the escape room industry was very competitive. They were very much about keeping secrets. Um, so because I had already established myself as a – I didn't have a dog in the fight. I didn't have an escape room company. Um, I was a professor – and I had already established myself as a good guy that shares information. I got higher participation on that survey than you might typically get from a, I mean, we got over 50% responses to just an over the transom survey to every escape room I could find on the internet. So, <laughs> which if you're in survey research, that's a crazy high response rate for a sort of blind, here's a survey out of nowhere uh, response. But that led me into starting to write about design and helping escape rooms to do a better job with design. So I'll pause there and see where you want to take this journey next. Yeah, actually, you already started to hint at it, as I was hoping, yes. Uh, but um, I escape rooms are super popular now as a commercial experience. So but that's like a very contained, like you go in the room, you solve the puzzles, you leave the room, the game is over. In a classroom, um, you... The, the escape room is like the injection vector for knowledge. You want the student to learn something. There's a learning goal. So what are some key differences in design 
for a classroom escape game specifically versus something commercial. Well, and you use the right term there, escape game, which is the term that we coined for the book that we wrote instead of going escape rooms, because escape rooms are best with a small group of people in a, in a specialized space, neither of which teachers usually have. So you, the only ways I've seen that work out are in classrooms where they have a room that's like an after-school club, like an escape room club, where mm -hmm. a group of students can make an escape game in this dedicated space. They then run it and let other students play it after school. Um, that actually works really well as a, as a, but it's not, at that point, it's typically not a heavy duty learning activity. It's more of a student design activity. They can go together, but if it's like an after school club, uh, you usually don't want to force too much of, hey, you've got to apply a learning outcome to this game. Um, but in our in the book I wrote with Liz Cable about this, we explore different game shapes. And that's the term we use for different ways teachers could use concepts from escape rooms in the classroom. And so one way is through a puzzle hunt structure. So in a puzzle hunt, what you do is you give every, you, you split the students up into groups, you give every group a packet of puzzles and the puzzles will be related to the learning outcomes. As they solve the puzzles, they'll get code words and those code words they then bring back to the teacher who then once they see they've gotten the puzzles solved, they get another packet of puzzles. Um, you can, now another way of doing that is through breakout boxes. Now breakout boxes is where rather than have a packet of puzzles, you'll have a box that has physical locks on it. And each group of students will get a box. They'll have, still have puzzles, probably in paper form, maybe mechanical form, they'll solve to open the box. Um, and then, it, so the structure is very similar to a puzzle hunt, but you have physical boxes instead of paper products. Uh, but the idea is the same. Each group can solve their own stuff. You can still use um, external activities as part of either of these. So you could have something where when you get to this point in the game, go to the library, look for this book, get the information, then come back. Or go to this other room where you've already set up something for them to observe and look at, look at it to get information and come back. Um, so those are two ways of taking the escape room experience. Um, another way of doing it is, and this was a Liz Cable's idea, it's, she called it serial stories. And with serial stories, what you do is rather than have an hour long game, which doesn't fit the classroom model very well um, because your class is usually an hour, you have a 10 minute single activity. But the idea is that you do this once a week and it tells an ongoing story. Uh, so you have one activity that goes on. Now that there's some real advantages to that. It's a lot less prep because you're only making one thing instead of making seven or eight things. You know, everyone's gonna be doing the same thing at the same time. Because with an escape room model, people go running off kind of on their own pace. Yeah. Um, so the serial stories is like we're everyone's solving this one puzzle. Then we can debrief and talk about what we learned from that one puzzle. And then as the teacher, if you're smart, you ask the students, hey, what do you think will happen next? And then they'll tell you what you make for next week. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the old uh, game master technique as you listen to your players and you make some of what they predict come true. Because uh, when that happens, they get very excited. That also then ties in very nicely with that's a very achievable thing for a student group to create. So Ooh. the teacher makes the first half of the semester and then you assign student groups once they've seen, you know, because a single puzzle that's something that's that you can you can get your head around when you see some examples. So then the rest of the semester is each group presenting their puzzle that in the established story world that you've created. Um, you can also do pop-up escape rooms. So that's where you bring everything in and you set up the room. You can do them for larger groups. And in fact, some of the, uh, there's a group out of Japan called Scrap. And it was one of the, they actually did escape events before escape rooms. They were some of the first ones to do escape rooms um, in, in the form we know them. But they ran thousand person, thousands of persons escape events where it'd be escape from the ball field. And it was more like the puzzle hunt structure. So all the teams would get the packet of puzzles. As they cracked the puzzles, it would direct them to different physical locations in the ball field, which would then, and the goal was for teams to try and get out within an hour. And so you can create activities for your entire class in that kind of structure, um, but they can be exhausting to run and, and a real hassle. Um, so the book that we wrote last year covers those sorts of game shapes. Um, 
But my next chapter in that story happens with uh, what I did over this last year. I've just finished a sabbatical from the university. And this addresses what I saw as one of the big issues with doing these escape games in classrooms, and that is resources. So I was presenting about these different escape groups in front of a group called the M Education Alliance, which is a group that focuses on working with low resource classrooms like in Africa and India and things like that. And they said, well, Scott, how could a classroom use an escape game if they only have a blackboard? What? So here's the room. The room has a sand floor. The room has benches. You've got 40 eager students that would love to be, be involved. You've got a blackboard. That's it. How do you do something? So you don't have even the luxury of disposable paper to work with. So I took that on as my, and that was my challenge for my sabbatical over the last academic year. And I said, well, okay, I've got 40 years of game designs and gameplay experiences. Let me tap all of that and find the little pieces that I could bring together and stitch something up that could work. So, because I thought about, well, in my past, I've engaged in different games that don't require a lot of stuff. I've engaged in storytelling games, in role-playing games. And and I thought about like interactive fiction games, like the old Zork games where the the text adventures, where it's like, there's a mailbox here. Do you want to open it? I don't know if you've seen Parsley games. Um, Parsley games is where they took a text adventure and turned it into a party game. So the way Parsley games work is one person is the, the parser, and they have the script and they'll read the first couple lines. You know, you're in a field. There's a mailbox here. There's a sword here. What do you do? And you point to the first kid in your classroom or first person of the party. And they say the one thing they want to do. I want to get the sword. All right. You have the sword. What do you do? And you point to the next person and you continue to go around your class and they're working their way through the script. So Parsley Games, you can you can buy PDFs. of. They've got a bunch of games out there. They're, it's a fun classroom activity because everyone's working together, but each person only gets to give a single input. Um, and you as the teacher have to respond. So when I started a a year ago, when I started the sabbatical research, I started with that and said, well, let's make that, but make it for educational games. But what I found quite quickly is, is, and I designed that and started to test it, is I found that teachers who didn't have experience with role-playing games um, got uh, frustrated having to improvise when the students would say, stick the sword in the tree, you know, or whatever, which they would do. Now, if you've had experience running role-playing games or comfortable improvising, that's great. And that is out there. You can you can use that method if you want. But I realized it was too complex for most classrooms um, because it required the teacher to do too much improvisation when they hadn't had a lot of experience doing that. So I stepped back and said, all right, what's at the core of these games? And I said, well, at the core, there's two things. There's making choices and overcoming challenges. So this game system I've created, it's called Escape If, and it's all free. It's all at escapeif.com. It's all in the Creative Commons. You can get the game system. You can get sample games. You can get toolkits for creation. The idea is to create something that the teacher just goes in with a script, and it's like an old choose-your-own-adventure book. So that it tells the teacher, read paragraph one. You know, you have come, you are working at the dinosaur safari, and the D-Long dinosaurs have gotten loose. You need to build a new cage for them. You have 25 meters of material. Um, Each D-long needs a one by one square meter space. How many D-longs can you contain in a fence that you build at 25 meters? So that's a challenge. Now that's a challenge for a math learning outcome because you have to look at perimeter, you have to look at area. It's not just one quick right answer. You have to actually talk about things. So the structure is for a challenge is you put the students in small groups, you give them the challenge, you help them work on it, and then they tell you what they figured out. The other thing you incorporate are choices. So a choice might be, uh, it's a really hot day. You can either wear a short sleeve shirt, which will be cool, but will not protect you. Or you could wear a long sleeve shirt, which will be warmer, but will protect you. Um, which, what do you want to wear today? And you, again, if it's a decision related to the learning outcomes, you break the students up into small groups, you have them talk. If it's not related to learning outcomes, I just jump right to a vote at that point and you let all the students vote and you move ahead. And then on the board, you'd write long sleeve shirt, short sleeve shirt. So the board is like your computer screen. 
It's going to track your inventory. You can use it to draw maps of what's going on. You use it to lay out the problems. And you alternate between choices and challenges. So the players have some agency as to what they're doing. The challenges bring about the learning outcomes. You do that. So I find for a, a one uh, class game, which I go for about 40 minutes, it's usually like three challenges and a couple choices in the middle. And then you have a, a reflection at the end. And the idea is that the whole game is set to help the players understand the real world implication of what it is they're learning. So you tie the learning outcomes into the real world. And in the design documents I've got to help teachers make these, it's really all about that, starting with your learning outcomes and the real world implication and build a story out of it. So that's where, that's my current project is to help teachers be able to use escape games without needing the boxes or the paper or the anything or the time to have to prep something big. It's just a script that you go in with and the teacher is making the reality happen as they read the script. So if the kids don't like dinosaurs, well, then you can call them goats and elephants or robots or whatever, because the teacher is making the reality come to life. There's no computer game to change. There's no boards and cards that are locked in place. If you get to a puzzle and a, a math puzzle and it's too hard or an English puzzle, it's too hard, you can change it. Because again, the teacher is just reading from a script, but their reality is whatever they say. So that's the other nice thing is the teacher's in control of the game. They can change the game very easily because they the, the the reality doesn't exist till they open their mouth so they can make a change even on the spot if they're finding it's too hard they can insert more information um you know so so that's my current my current project that i've done for the last year is this escape if project oh my god that sounds really cool we could go on about this a long time but i want to focus on something that you just said which is adjusting difficulty in these games so i'm a gamer and, you know, for me, it seems really natural that I would do things through games, but I know that that's not true for all of my students. So how do you handle difficulty level in an escape game in a classroom, especially when students are having a hard time completing a puzzle and it's going to block them from hitting that learning outcome? Like, how do you make sure that they learn what they need to learn, regardless of whether they're actually good at escape puzzles? So again, that's the escape if helps to address that because the problem with a class-based escape room, whether it be a digital game or a physical game, is that the groups are all on their own pace and they yeah. can all hit that lock point. And you are then, as the teacher, you can provide hints to individual groups, but you're running around trying to keeping everyone moving forward. The advantage of escape if is everyone's together that you are, you present the puzzle to the students. You tell the students now you have five minutes work in small groups. If you're stuck, raise your hand, I can help you. And then at the end of five minutes, you take answers from students. You may ask a group, you wanna show us how you did that. So you're using your teaching methods that you already know mm -hmm. in order to solve that problem. Because then first they're in groups. So there's a better chance that someone in the group will be able to help. Second, if the group's completely stuck in five minutes, you're gonna be talking through the problem anyway. You've gotten them ex mentally interested in it because there's been nothing else they could do for those five minutes. So that's the other things you're taking. Escape rooms have that problem of offering so many affordances that the players can get stuck on something that they shouldn't be working on because there's mm. so much stuff out there. With this escape if model, you're taking away all that extraneous stuff. It's like, here's the one thing. We're all doing it as a class at the same time. You're all in small groups working on it. Then we're going to talk about it. And we're going to make sure everyone's on board with it. And if it's clear that a lot of the class didn't get it, well, then you can create right there another challenge that's similar to have them do it again. It's like, well, all right. So now that you see how we did that with 25 meters, okay, now you've got 32 meters. Now solve the same problem with 32 mm -hmm. meters of fencing. Um, now they've seen, they've got a worked example. So that's, again, an advantage of the escape if. And that's what I've been trying to do with this escape if is address some of these design issues that come with escape rooms and that and i've seen people will take the escape if game because the other thing that escape if games once you have one designed it's very easy to turn it into a twine game twine Ooh. is a tool to let you do branching narratives well if you've already written out all the words and you've already written out all the branching logic and it's all there it's actually just copy and paste and you have a twine game the problem is now you're back to the issue of students all being at different paces in the game and people getting stuck and and you lose that idea that we're all taking the journey together as compared to everyone's out it also it also takes away the competitive nature so at our school in laurier 
uh, the way our game design program is different is we are focused on a meaningful games on on critical games um you know we're focused i don't know if you've heard about the wholesome games movement but on games that are cozy and uncooperative games more focused on building instead of destruction more focused on nurturing instead of killing um and so when we do a game jam we don't have any sort of competition there's not a best of because we find competition can tend to it encourages shortcuts. It encourages people uh, to not necessarily want to help each other to um, do the best thing. So the escape if model has the whole class working together on the same stuff at the same time. So there's reasons they all want to help each other improve. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, I've actually, um, I mean, I, I always see games as something that is relatively competitive and am a competitive person. I think that there's room in my life for wholesome games as well. Um, actually, one of the reasons I became a teacher was that I knew that it would curb some of my more competitive natural instincts, because when my students do well, I do well. And that's exactly where I, I need to be. So I like that. Yeah, um, we know the problem, the problem with comp too much competition is that a competitive classroom game structure really only helps the students that don't need the help. Yeah. It, the, the students that are strong and are driven to be stronger are, are benefited by a competitive game structure. The students that are not as strong are hurt by a competitive game structure. So, <laughs> so I did a, a research project where I used different forms of gamification in different classrooms to look and see what the, what the effect was. Because there's been a lot of push to say, hey, use gamification in the classroom and it'll get the students really excited. And what I found is that the students that got really excited and benefited the most by it are the students that didn't need that support, the strong students. They yes. got stronger. The, the, the students that were weak just got weaker and weaker, and they didn't care anymore because they didn't see any way they'd be able to improve. So instead, what I was thinking is, well, how do we, we need to focus on our games that help everyone? It's, it becomes a, a tighter net to catch everyone and help them all engage. And that's where cooperative games come into play, where you've got the whole class working together on things that helps everyone to come along as compared to just the strongest students pushing the leaderboard and leaving everyone else behind. Now, that may be the way life is. And, you know, I might say, oh, well, you know, that's the American way, um, but I'm Canadian. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I like this as an alternative. So I actually do struggle with that in my classroom. I love to play games with my students and they are competitive and they like to play. But if it's too obvious who's going to win, then it's not fun. So I've, I've normally tried to solve this problem by like kind of introducing luck into games in my class to kind of make the outcome a little more spotty so that anybody could win. But I like this idea of having like a more cooperative experience. It's actually keeping everybody on the same um, task at the same time, because that is something I do routinely struggle with in my class, people rushing ahead and people being very competitive. So like, you're absolutely right about that. Um, I have another engagement question as well. So in your book with Liz Cable, um, at one point you distinguish between a puzzle and a task and talked about student engagement and not wanting to have too many tasks and wanting to have more puzzles. What did you mean by that? And how does that play into making a classroom game? Because I often find that like an educational game isn't always as fun as you would think uh, because it's too bluntly educational. So like, mm -hmm. how do you strike that right balance and keep it fun? So in the Escape If work I've been doing, uh, the way I talk about that is at the beginning when you're brainstorming the narrative, it's, it's the Escape If model is narrative first. And to think about a playful setting where you could then extract whatever you're doing back to something in the real world. So that's where, you know, working on a dinosaur safari is going to be more playful than a setting that's more on the nose. Um, puzzles and tasks. So the main difference, a task is a challenge where you know what the goal is and you just have to figure out the steps to reach it. It's like, that's, mm -hmm. here's the done state and you have to do what you need to do to get to that done, done state. So it's like, you've got to build this tower and you're going to have to use these pieces to build the tower. And here's how you do it. It's just now down to your skill to be able to do it. And so you, you know what you're trying to do with puzzles. On the other hand, many times you don't necessarily know that path. That you're going to be taking with a task it's like that's the that the task is well i can you're like a laser maze is a task it's like i know i have to get to the end of the laser maze and i know that there's this path and you can see what the path is but it's really my skill of manipulating my body 
to be able to get through the laser maze. That's the challenge. Right. You could design a laser maze. That's also a puzzle where there's multiple paths and you don't know which path is going to be the easiest path to get through. Um, and that's part of the game. You could even go so far as to have given the players access to say a mirror where you could bounce a laser into a sensor to give you a space if you figure out to do that. Or you could be like what we did. So when we designed, so I should say I'm horrible at laser mazes. My, my team name is uh, Captain Kool-Aid. Uh, that's what they call me when I come to a laser maze because I'm just like the Kool-Aid man barreling through the lasers. Oh, yeah. And I smash through everything. Um, <laughs> I always set them off. And so in the Red Bull Escape Room World Championships that we designed, I made a laser maze where the goal was to block all the lasers instead of to avoid the lasers. The players had to figure that out. They had to figure out why are we setting this off? Um, and they'd have to figure out, oh, oh, we succeed only by blocking everything. So I wanted to help fat people win. Yay. <laughs> we need it. But anyway. <laughs> so in the teaching environment, so like the, the challenge I said earlier about the D-Longs and the dinosaur pen, and you have 25 meters of fencing and what size fence can you create? Um, that's a puzzle because you don't know. And you, you, there's, there is a best answer but you don't know what that best answer is. Um, it's because you've got to try different pen sizes and different, different dimensions. You have the same perimeter for everything, but it's gonna be different areas based upon what you said as the size of the perimeter. And so that's where that puzzling aspect comes in. And you can see that's, there's some engagement with that. It does take longer because the students now, it's not where you say you have 24 meters and you're gonna make a six by four foot pen. How many D-longs can that hold? What's the area of a six by four foot pen? So there's not much puzzle in that. You know, yeah. That's very straightforward. Here's the process as compared to here's different paths and things that you can explore. Um, so the thing about the, having more puzzles is puzzles get you more mentally engaged with what's going on because you are part of the challenge is figuring out what to do. And part of the challenge is the doing. So there can be tasks within puzzles where it's like, I know that I need to get this thing to happen and we're going to have to do it. And now we figure that out. Now we're saying, well, was that the right thing to do? Just like there can be tasks that have puzzles within them. So there's, it's not as cut and dried, but it really comes down to, do I know what I'm trying to accomplish? And it's just coming down to my ability to do the thing. Or do I not know what I'm trying to accomplish? And a part of it is trying to solve that challenge of, of, of what's the path going to be, or you might know the goal, but you don't know the right path as compared to there's the goal. That's the path. We just have to pull this off. Interesting. So I also, so I've enjoyed parts of this conversation about wholesome gaming and gaming is a way to invite students of all types into a task. So it's not just the strong, keep getting stronger and the A student stays the A student, everything stays the same. Um, that, that these sorts of puzzling activities and games can draw in more students. And I remember noticing, I noticed in your book that you talked about how puzzle solving is actually um, an excellent way to get neurodivergent students to come out of their shell. Um, so I guess what makes gaming in particular something that not, not just that everyone can participate, but maybe everybody can thrive? And how do you kind of pump those aspects up if you're going to play games in your classroom? So what's important is that you make sure and choose games that reward a variety of strategies. Escape rooms, that's another reason I liked escape rooms is because well-designed escape rooms don't just require you to do eight math problems, but you're having a variety of activities that you do. Um, I made an, one of the escape rooms I made, the first one I made for a learning facility was for a, uh, a national park in upstate New York, a military park. And so it was a game designed for families to understand the story of this military fort. So that was one of the challenges is, is making an escape game for a family to play together. Well, the way that I worked on that is I made sure there were some challenges that the kids would excel at and the parents might struggle with. So one of the ways I did that, for example, is, is I couldn't use, so in, it, it, because it's a national park, I couldn't use anything futuristic, meaning anything from today in the room. It all had to be stuff that existed during that time. And so I needed a way to bring about a timer in the room so the, the players would know they had 20 minutes to play the room and get out. Without a, You can have a clock on the wall and there's not going to be a countdown clock. I needed a reason and I very much focus on reasons in the game. So in this case, the idea was that 
um, there were, they knew that there were guards that patrolled every five minutes and they would hear the audio of footsteps telling them the guards were coming. And the players knew when they heard the guards coming, they had to hide. So they were not in sight of someone walking by the door. Now, I also had it such that one of the puzzles in the game was from the audio. So because the players were doing nothing on that time other than hiding and listening. So that was a nice way of having an audio puzzle that you knew everyone would be listening to because they, there was nothing else to do at that moment. But that was something that you got to watch. The kids would be really great at finding hiding spots. The parents wouldn't, and the kids would help hide the parents. Um, and so <laughs> that's what I mean by having a different activities in your game. Um, the other piece is to think about how do you create roles for your players? So this is more of a traditional escape room model. Because one of the problems I'll see in escape rooms, I was, uh, I was uh, consulting with NASA about making uh, games for science museums. And they had made a game about building a, a moon base and they were t running tests of it. And we would watch these tests and there was always one player uh, that would usually, that would get very aggressive and take control of the whole game, leaving everyone else to just sit and watch. And they're like, you know, what do we do about this? Because we've got one player who's kind of doing everything. So, well, you give each player a role, and with that role, you give them a unique tool. And so it's like, you are the archivist. This is your clipboard. This is yours, and you will need it at some point in the game. And then you make sure one of the challenges requires that player to step up and be involved with what's going on because they're doing, they've got a specific checklist they're checking off. And it's like, you are the observer. Here are your binoculars. You, they're yours, put them around your neck and there'll be a point where you will need to use these things. If you let the players then pick their roles and you give them enough information so they have an idea of, they can pick the thing that sounds like something they'd be good at. Then you get to make sure everyone's the hero. You get to reduce the alpha player concept because everyone's got a time when they're the one in charge. Um, and so that's the way, and I like to do, you can do that in normal escape rooms as well, where you create roles for the players. What I found is in most escape rooms, players don't really role play. Uh, it takes a very specific sort of player that wants to role play. Um, that's something that I've, I've talked about and, and given talks on is how to bring more, more role playing in escape rooms. But what I found that works best is if it's, it's item focused. It's like, you are the, you know, you're the explorer. Here are your binoculars. You're going to use those. Well, you give someone a pair of binoculars that at some point in the game, let them do something. And they're now role-playing the explorer. They've got, you know, that, that gets them involved. And so having that concept, you could think in classroom settings, I guess, especially when we tie it back to simulations and we tie it back to if this were a real world situation, you know, or our fantasy world situation, who would everyone's role be and what would they do and how would they engage with things? I like that. So <clears throat> there's one other concept in your book that I had a hard time wrapping my mind around how this would actually work. And I'm just so curious. So um, those of you who are uh, listening, don't worry, I'm going to link this book in the show notes that uh, Professor Nicholson and Liz Cable wrote together. Uh, but um, you, you, there's a part of this book that talks about social puzzles that are based around like ethical concepts and that learning to view the world in a different way or take a different approach, like ethically would be a way to solve the puzzle. How does that work? How would you do that? Like, I'm just totally fascinated by this as a concept. It just really pushes things for me in a way that I can't even imagine yet. So I'll give you an example from my first, my breakout EDU game that I wrote called Ballot Box Bumble. That's actually <laughs> out there and, and free to download. I made that game because I just moved to Canada and I wanted to get my head around the electoral system. They were coming up on one of their national elections. So I wrote a game designed for high school civics class where it was based on the different methods that Canada uses for counting up ballots and figuring out there's there's different ways they do their math up here about how they decide who wins, which in many ways are as broken as U.S. gerrymandering, um, just in different ways. Um, but so the way that the backstory of that game is you are poll volunteers being sent. The poll has just closed. You're volunteers at the poll, but the poll director is nowhere to be found. Elections Canada is expecting to be able to get the results of your poll in 20 minutes. Um, you hear 20 minutes a lot, by the way, because I've learned for classroom games, 20 minutes is what you want to do. It's a good, it's a good number. 
that's 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 i find that's a 20 minute game it's like four puzzles that's that's about right for a classroom or a museum experience now, the hour-long game it just it goes on a little too much for that kind of space so 20 minutes is is a good number i found but anyway um so the poll the the elections canada will be calling in 20 minutes to get the results of the poll uh, so the players uh, go into the office, the back office of the elections manager, and they start to under uh, uncover this information. They find a letter in the trash can that says, okay, on poll night, here's what you're going to do. You're going to set up your poll volunteers to make them look like the ones that are defrauding the election, and, and then you're going to get out of town. And as the players are looking around the office, they find and this is based on Canadian electoral fraud. So I based this on things that actually happened in Canada. So there was a thing called robocalling where a, a party set up a, an automatic calling program that called people from a specific party and told them the polling place had changed and it was a false polling place. And this is something that actually happened up here. So the players find a spreadsheet on a computer. They find an audio file saying your polling place has changed, report to this address, which is different than the address that's sitting on the desk. And they can see everyone from, it's everyone that was called that was in this one party. So that's what the puzzles were. We're understanding some of the things that had happened in Canada's history with electoral fraud. So as the players play the game, they discover that their polling manager had been engaged in about four types of electoral fraud, but because they had their hands on the spreadsheets and the documents and were being set up to being portrayed as the ones that did all of this, as they learned by finding that letter, well, then now it gets interesting. So at the end of 20 minutes, whether they've gotten it. The, so if they want, they can get the elections box open. They can count the ballots. They can have the numbers all ready to go. 20 minutes. Now we have the social part. Teacher role plays. Hi there. This is Elections Canada. What have you learned? And how the students respond to that question determines how they how well they do in the game. It doesn't matter one whit if they get the box open or if they count the ballots or any of that, because there's three different endings of the game. And what I did for that is I made three different newspaper articles based on how they answer. So they can just give the numbers. If they give the numbers, they then get this newspaper article that they are now brought up on fraud uh, because they've had all this evidence of them on the computer and them touching all these things. Um, they can report the fraud. They can say, hey, something's suspicious, in which case they get another ending about uh, that they caught this, this fraud. And then, but what's important is at the end of that then is we have a reflection. You always have to have a reflection after a game. That's where the learning happens because the reflection is about the concept of civic duty and the concept that the reason why there's volunteers here is because it has more people with their eyes open for something that might be going on. And that's the ethical point of the game. It actually, the rest of it is, doesn't matter at all from a winning or losing perspective. So people that get, what I find about a third of the people get so focused on winning the game. They count the ballots, they report the numbers, done. And then they get this ending that's kind of like, you lose. Um, you know, we don't, I never say you lose, it's just that there's consequences. Um, yeah. And then we reflect upon, you know, if this were the actual situation, what should you do? What should be your, and because that's the idea, if it's a civics class, you want that learning outcome to be like, oh, all right, this is part of our duty to say, hey, something's not right here. Something's not going on. So that's a great example of how the end of the game is this ethical situation that it's up to the players. It's not forced down their throat. It's not like, you know, here's the ethics of, because it would be a very different game if I said, go and investigate the office and look for points of fraud and try to figure that out. Totally different game at that point, but I wanted it to come out at the end as this, did you have that aha? And even if they don't and they get the bad ending, you then still have the reflection because actually it's a reflection where the learning happens to say, well, what did you learn? What If you ever volunteer for something like this, what should you do if you see something that is suspicious? You know, how do you act on that? And you can talk about civic duty and talk about all that stuff. So that's a way of baking ethics into a game that didn't seem like it had it at the beginning. This is giving me so many ideas for my own classroom, but I want to respect your time. So I'll ask you my last couple of softball questions. One, have you played anything fun recently, um, especially if it is a board game or tabletop RPG that somebody out there could just try out? Um, to be honest, the thing I've been having the most fun with is not a board game. I, I've Because of COVID, I've not been playing board games with anyone um but i've i've been playing valheim with a group of friends now valheim is kind of like viking minecraft 
So it's it's the Minecraft concept of of mining and building, but it's all Viking set. And I've been enjoying. I never got into Minecraft. Never really liked it. But for some reason, Valheim, I've been enjoying that quite a bit. Um, so you and it, it is play. It is more enjoyable when you're with other people. Uh, making your Viking houses together and and creating your own little this little Lego world out of uh, bearded Vikings. So I've been that's that's the thing I've been actually playing more of than anything else. I love it. And uh, if people have questions uh, for you, where can you be found online? So if you are on social media, I am very active on Twitter at s Nicholson. Um, I'm over on Facebook at uh, Professor Scott Nicholson. You can find me there. Um, my email is scott at scottnicholson.com. That's another good way to reach me. YouTube, you can see a variety of uh, things at S. Nicholson over there. And finally, if you want to learn more about all the escape if stuff I talked about, that's all at escapeif.com. It's all free. And what I'm hoping will happen with that is you'll take a look at it. You will then try to make your own escape if game. There's a YouTube, about a two-hour tutorial on how to make your own game. And then the M Education Alliance is hosting an archive of games so that you can upload your game and share it with other teachers. Um, my next step in this process is to look to get funding to create a student-friendly version of the tutorial, the game-making tutorial, so that we can start getting students to make these games. Because if the resulting game is just a written out script, there's no programming language, there's no boards and cards, there's nothing like that to deal with. It's something that any student that can tell a story can make. And that's where I'm going forward with this, is getting more students to tell their story through making these games. I love it. And everybody who's out there, uh, this will all be in the show notes as well. So please go check out escapeif.com. Um, if you're listening, you probably know I can be found anywhere on the internet as Beyond Solitaire. Uh, Scott, thank you so much for coming on. This has been wonderful. And thank you for having me. And uh, hopefully you can get yourself trapped in a room before you know it. <laughs> Indeed. Or I can just trap my students. They come back next week. So my, my escape room year is only beginning. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, thanks so much, everybody out there. Uh, please like, subscribe, comment, ask questions, and most of all, happy gaming. Bye-bye. <laughs>